0: Hello and welcome to episode 96 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you have joined me for the second portion of the interview with Ange Roll. The content that we're talking about, if you have not downloaded or looked at the PDF that we discussed, it is on their website, which is theykeepbees.com and under down toward the, if you look under beekeeping and click Queen School and then go down toward the bottom, there is a link that says get our walkaway split recipe and fact sheet. And that's the one that has the content that we're discussing today. So when we talk about things, that is the piece of paper that I had in my hand. And as Ange mentions in this interview, if you actually look at this document online, there are links to other media about this information. So very cool. In the second portion of this interview, we continued talking about what factors they found that influenced the queen quality in the study. We talked about the disconnect between the methods taught in a lot of queen rearing classes versus what a backyard beekeeper really needs. In other words, the commercial queen rearing method versus the backyard queen rearing method and how, how different the needs of those two beekeepers are. We then venture into the potential quicksand of discussing treatment-free. <laughs> that was a fun tangent. We discussed the heaviness of full hive, and then... Then we get into the actual recipe, which you will read in that PDF comparing queen rearing methods on the back side. There is a method, the runaway split, probably the split with the best name ever. And talks us through that protocol. And again, it is both uh, spelled out and pictured out on the PDF. And reveals a surprise tip discovered by Sam Comfort of how to get your splits to draw out more wax. So that's what we're going to talk about in the upcoming interview. I'm about to jump right into. To it. As I mentioned before, I'm going to do a couple of bonus episodes for the patrons over at patreon.com fiveapple And one of those is just a personal response to this whole interview and things that it brought up in my mind of how I might apply it to my own yard and also how this interacts with my very favorite queen maker version of the cut down split. That was really fun to think about. So those will be bonus items in a podcast coming up next week for the patrons at patreon.com slash fiveapple. Yes, this is a shameless plug requesting that you join us in the Patreon community because the patrons are what keep this show on the air. Without further ado, here is part two of the interview with Ange Roll of They Keep Bees. Okay, I've got the PDF in front of me. Would you be willing to talk about, there's four major blocks that seem to have emerged as really big deals. Density, comb yeah, age. For the, for yeah, for the walkaway split. Yes, I have the one. It's okay. comparing queen rearing methods, results of the field data, and uh, density, comb age, brood age, and moving splits. Any of yeah, that that absolutely. you want to talk about, just uh, give me the overview there.
1: Yeah, so something that I thought was so interesting was the comb age success. And we saw that newer comb had a 73% success rate, meaning that the queens, 73% of the queens that went out and mated came back um, and took in their hives. Whereas with older comb, we only had a 56% success rate. And we we're really curious about this with walkway splits, whether it was because it would be harder for the bees to chew, chew and then feed those cells because the comb is harder to manipulate when it, as it gets older and ages and becomes more brittle and hard and dirty from all of the cocoons that are in there. And so we're really like, "Hmm, I wonder if that means that newer comb would produce better walkway splits or is it the newer comb has less toxins and chemicals built up in it. And so it just produces better queens. So there's like two, again, like you said, there's two questions there. We're not sure if it's because of the bee's ability to manipulate that comb or is it because of the, the, the natural feeling of toxins in the comb? And so using older combs means that the queens don't end up being as healthy, which means that they don't end up mating as successfully. And so that's something I think deserves way more study because right now we're being told that we should color comb like every three years, but maybe we need to be calling comb more consistently than that. And that would be a significant finding that I would want to know more about as a beekeeper. That's a
0: great, wow, I didn't even recognize that flag y'all had planted in there for some researcher to <laughs> to explore. But I have to say, I loved seeing the results on the Comage because I put my money on that horse way back. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Just because I had noticed uh, when uh, some of the different types of splits, because I, I don't really do walkaway splits per se. Now, uh, asterisk mm-hmm. here, because y'all, you're going to talk hopefully about the runaway split, which to me solves several <laughs> of the problems that I've always complained about, about the traditional walkaway split. But I'm thrilled because i had noticed that right away if i split a hive that had a lot of old comb they just weren't mm-hmm. as successful as if i split a younger yeah. hive which tended to have the the better comb and so that comb. was that was thrilling to see
1: i'm just i was just going to mention that I went up and studied with Kirk Webster a couple of years ago, and he was very heavily calling old combs. And he had thought it, he doesn't do walkway splits, he does grafting, but he had thought it was about toxin buildup. So he thought that the, the queens weren't mating as well in the mating nooks that had really old comb because of toxin buildup in those combs. And so he was just getting rid of them. So a lot of questions produced from that, but I think a, if you talk to a lot of, beekeepers were, were doing this on an instinct level right so it's cool to see where now we have some actual data and obviously more data is needed because science but <laughs> like right. all of those nuggets are really affirming when you're doing those things already in your apiary because you're because of observational data that you're just collecting by yourself
0: well i loved that one. now the one that truly surprised me was the density Because I had always assumed that just, you know, they can't possibly be too strong. And wow, it, it turned out
1: different. Yeah, we thought this was really interesting too. So a medium density of bees actually better than a high density of bees. Again, a thing that merits further understudy to understand, but maybe those stronger, the stronger density is too many bees and they lose, they lose the, you know, like we, we don't, we don't really know. It's like too crowded in there. It might be too hot. If they're very stressed from being dequeened and then it's very warm in there and there's a lot of comb, um, maybe their uh, their heat production is making it so that they're not able to raise adequate queen cells. We don't really know, but it's so fascinating because we're always told to make these things super, super strong. But actually, as a queen producer running small mating nooks, I'm always trying to figure out what the least number of bees I can have in there is while still having a high enough density of bees that... I'm preventing small hive beetles and wax moths from being able to take over. And I'm not putting so much stress on the bees that they're not able to make it through the two weeks, the queen going on her mating flight, right? So it's affirming for me as a queen producer because I'm like, okay, great. So it's not really about making these super strong nooks, um, but it's about having just enough bees. And also about those bees being the right age, because if you don't have enough nurse bees, and you only have forager bees, you're going to have a challenge with them rearing and raising and feeding the queen. I mean, they can go backwards in their in their roles, but it's, it's just a little bit more challenging for them to do that. And it takes a little bit more time, which means you may be looking at like the instar of the queen larva beginning to age before they make those shifts.
0: Yes, I I was thinking about that just the other day, because I mentioned on the podcast that when the hives, if a hive really dwindles in the winter and comes out in the spring with a really small population, but they're still hanging on, they still may, they may, they don't build up well, and it's it's like Mm -hmm. those those old bees are trying to eke out, you know, their last round of nurse duty, and it, it just doesn't go anything like if you, you know, have a certain level level of population so okay that that would that was surprised me now let's see the mating success based on brood age so was was this the talk to talk
1: about that yeah so this i feel like you know if we look at this if we did a statistical analysis of this it wouldn't there wouldn't be a significant difference but um we noticed that the younger the larva given to the bees um, the better they performed. So if we gave majority eggs or majority mixed, meaning open and capped brood, they performed well. Whereas it, it, instinct for me would say, like when I'm building a cell raiser, I want to put a ton of cast emerging brood into that cell raiser because those bees are going to come out, emerge, feed the queens, right? Particularly that that brood that's like just beginning to chew out of their cells. But in making walkaway splits, we saw that actually a mix of bees was important. I suspect that this has something to do with the fact that those that the eggs and mixed brood would cause the bees to stay, whereas if you just have capped larvae, you're gonna see a lot of drift from a walkaway split, especially which is true in the circumstances under which we did the study, if there's queen right hives in the yard, right? So if anyone who's made a walkaway split before or been in a queenless yard, if you have one hive with a queen in a queenless yard, all the forager bees go to that hive <laughs> because of the queen's pheromone. They drift away from those queenless hives and they're really attracted to that pheromone. And so that's why when you're making a lot of splits and producing queens, it's it's prudent to not have any queen right hives where you are because the drift is so significant. However, if you have a lot of open larva, you're going to get your bees, your older nurse bees and your forage bees to stay and take care of that young larva. And so it might give the bees more sticking power with that walkaway split. And we didn't look at the the correlation or causation. Was this a split that had eggs and was moved? You know what I mean? So like yes. there's, there's a way that I think this data could get... much more nuance if we had the time and capacity and weren't three people running two different businesses (laughs) right
0: i'm amazed as it as is yes
1: yeah and the funding right but there's there's a way that these variables could get so much more nuanced and you could see is it eggs and moving or is it eggs and staying in one place that makes the best clean and so there's an opportunity i think for for a lot more layering to happen here over time um that's exciting but eggs and mixed apparently get those bees to stick around more and produce better mating percentage for queen
0: you know what what is really just coming to my mind as as we were talking about this last part is that just in what you said if you are um, and I'm just going to call it commercial in the sense that you have a you have a queen business and you're making enough mm-hmm. that that's your focus it it just occurred to me that so many of the things that you do in a commercial queen rearing setup are mm-hmm. very different for example i mean in a commercial queen rearing grafting cell builders this type of stuff you're you're creating these artificial parts that do one thing right. great and, um, yep. y- right. And then, like you said, you're in, in the mating nukes, you want to use as few of your resources to get that one queen mated as, right. you, as you possibly can, because she's going to cost the same, whether you used an entire hive to get her mated or two cups of bees, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. What, what just struck me in, in what you're talking about, like this, this brood age way that to be broken down, it's, it's very different in, in that cell builder yard, for example, um, you just have a total different proportion of bee ages and and things than you would have in a regular backyard beekeeper. I've got hives in every stage and they're all going to be right here together. So I do love it that you are both looking at some of these larger factors that could affect both ends of the queen rearing spectrum and then I on the flip side of this pdf then you have this method the runaway split which you know is not something that a commercial queen producer needs to mess with but this page to me opens it up for for anybody to to start this journey you know without grafting and without learning each of those parts that that's what um the grafting when I learned grafting that segment to me was really easy but what was the right. giant pain in the butt was setting up the cell raisers and then getting that many, oh, yeah, yeah, getting that many nukes mm-hmm. prepared at the exact right time. And then I really needed a second yard. And that was just a huge, I was like, I don't need all this. I don't need to end yeah. up with 25 queens of this same age cause, because that's not what I'm, what I'm doing. And that's how I kind of right. slid back to more what I think of as, as frame-based queen rearing that it just goes on with the stuff that i have in a normal kind of some honey and bees to play with yard
1: yeah so uh, yeah absolutely i mean in a in a commercial operation your queen your mating yard is got to be 2 miles from your drone production yard your mating yard queenless hives all the way very small your drone production yard is big hives that have a lot of drone brood um, and are well populated. And then you've got your like cell raiser yard because you don't wanna have your mating yard and your cell raisers in the same place because the cell raisers are queenless and they've got cells in them and you don't want your queens to be coming back to the cell raiser instead of the mating nook, right? (laughs) And killing all the cells that you're trying to cultivate. So you have this like balance of keeping everything separate which requires multiple yards, multiple locations, within a certain distance of each other. So you're not driving two hours between yards, and a lot of like strategy building for how you're going to execute all of that with perfect timing, which something is always going to go wrong when you have that many variables, right? It's just the Murphy's law is so prevalent in beekeeping. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, right. Murphy's law squared is beekeeping Murphy's law. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and I think it just dawned on me the difference, you know, because I, I recall the experience of watching beginners sitting beside me in a, in a queen rearing class that I was attending, which was great, but it was about setting up essentially commercial level queen Mm -hmm. rearing stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing these beginners just begin to melt down on, on pretty much every different yard that you just named. And it becomes quickly apparent how that's just not the best thing. I mean, even if the beginner can do all those things somehow, that's that's just not the best application of the resource of that beekeeper, you know, if they're not trying to sell queens.
1: You're going to fail and you're going to get frustrated. And then what happens when you fail too many times and get frustrated is you don't keep doing it, right? I mean, I... I started out my like beekeeping practice as a backyard beekeeper, and then became a backyard queen producer, and had so much failure because I was trying to do cell raisers and mating books in the same place, and I, you know, i just completely overwhelmed, like you're saying about what the heck was even going on. Like I was like, I can but I can't build a cell raiser to save my life. And then I can build a cell raiser, but now my grafts are failing. <laughs> I can do both those things, but now my mating milks have hive beetles. You know, like you're just, you're coming up against so much self-challenge and without a good mentor, which is challenging to find, right? Queen producing mentors we're scattered all over the place. It's hard to then know what part of it you did wrong or which particular variable of that particular part you did wrong. And so it's really hard to, feel encouraged to keep trying to produce queens and keep trying to experiment. Whereas you make some good walk away or run away splits and you're successful and you're like, look at that. I did that. I made a queen. The bees made the queen. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> we collaborated on this queen.
0: <laughs> it's thrilling. And you know, what you're saying is that those, those commercial techniques, they make perfect sense on a commercial scale, but it would be like if somebody said, I want to learn to bake a cake and you said, okay, first we have to build a commercial baking factory. Yeah. <laughs> And I think in beekeeping, that's kind of what, you know, that was the option uh, really. And uh, with the exception of people just winging it on their own. And then now mm-hmm. y- you and Sam in particular promoting this. Now there's a method that makes sense. That is the most reasonable use of that one human being who, or, or, or even a small group of human beings who are trying to just right. be sustainable. They don't want to sell a thousand queens. They just want to be sustainable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that we haven't talked about is that those, the walk away, runaway splits, that like those also give you a longer brood break than if you're using cells of any kind. And so you actually get a full break in the brood cycle from the time that the bees choose which larva they're going to raise into a cell that hatches out into a queen, that queen goes on her mating flight, and you've got four weeks where there's not all of the brood in that hive has emerged and there's no new brood until that queen comes back mated. So what you're also getting is this bonus brood break that is going to drop the mite level in your hive. And I'm not saying that means that you never treat treatment is a, we could do a whole podcast about that, but I'm saying it gives your bees a break where they are not having to fight that varroa off so venomously. Right. And what that does is give them an opportunity to recover from viral infections that they might be sustaining from that varroa and it gives them an opportunity to build their brood back. So maybe you still have to do your fall treatments, you definitely still have to do your mite count, but you might not have to treat twice in a year. And so we're starting to reduce the reliance on chemical intervention, which means that we're not breeding for mites that are virulent and resistant to all of the chemicals that we're using inside of the hive. So it's also starting to break down mites being resistant to chemicals in this passive way and this simple way.
0: Well, I love that. And if, if you're making an offer then sold on you coming back and talking about that topic. Yeah, we should
1: have like a yeah. a
0: panel. <laughs> well, you know, because I um my podcast listeners don't get much on that because I'm just on yeah. a different path. I'm working on a different thing and and I know they need it because the overwhelming majority of folks who listen are not in remote mountainous settings and have been working on this one thing for a lot of years. So that, that would be great. And um, that's wonderful. Oh yes, absolutely. Please do.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting, it's an interesting conversation and I, I use treatments in my larger like drone producing hives that are also honey producing hives. And I do not use treatments in my queen production operation or my breeder queens. And so I'm very, and the treatments I use are oxalic acid. So nothing stronger than that. Um, But I'm very particular about mite counts and I'm very stringent about when they need to be done. It's when you take a beginner's bee class with me, I spend a whole like three hour class talking about mites. So I think it's really important. Um, And I also think that a lot of folks are like, oh, I want to be a treatment-free beekeeper, which means I will not use treatments. But if you're not implementing any kind of management strategies like brood break, drone comb removal, things of that nature that are naturally going to reduce the mite pressure in your hive. And it's going to be inherently harder to get those bees to survive with a mite load, unless you have a queen that has is hitting every single one of the genetic markers. Let, and let's face it, if a commercial beekeeper has a queen that's doing that well, they're not going to sell it to you. Thank, thank you. <laughs> right, right, it's, right.
0: And and for your other golden unicorn, this is what you will have. Right. Yes. Um, 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 and and I believe that um, listeners would be very open. To hearing that talk from you, particularly because you do that both ways. You are, you know, yeah, yeah, you have a a line that you're not using any and then others. And so, you know, both sides. Generally, you know, folks are either in the absolutely not never, ever, even if they're all dead um, uh, camp or in the you must treat or else camp. And there's just nothing in between. So that's again, so wonderful.
1: For us, what we're discovering is that as you, as we have initiated brood breaks, removing drone comb, and really cycling several uh, queens through our apiary, is that we're cleaning our bees so much that there isn't a, a need to treat. Right, every every hive in our apiary gets a brood break, whether it's drone producer or queen producer, and so in every single yard, we are noticing less and less need to apply these treatments because more and more we are using these brood breaks. Now we're also trying to aggressively select for bees that are resistant and can handle the number of brood breaks. So we're we're willing to sustain a higher number of loss or call a higher number of hives than someone in the backyard operation might be. But that's because we're looking for that bee that has those resistance markers that's going to be able to survive using the management strategies that we use. I started out as a treatment-free beekeeper. I use some treatments uh, for several years and now I'm moving back towards not using treatments at all but I also think that treatment free is this like brought to term because we don't have a we don't have like a scientific assignment of what that means you know like the definition of that term means so many things to so many different people Absolutely. it means complete hands-off yeah. management to some people and to some people it means a lot of manipulation and management. I'm like really careful about even saying those two words together cuz I'm just like I don't want to have this debate. <laughs> right. I mean that's a
0: that's a term I pr- I don't apply to myself and I don't use because when I say that phrase some people mean I haven't seen my bees since 1962. And other people Mm -hmm. are like me, pretty much use a lot of traditional beekeeping methods with, but stop short of that one, one thing. I'm doing it with a purpose. I know I've heard people gasp when I'm like, well, yeah, if this wasn't working, I would use the organic treatments in a heartbeat, you know, because right. Duh. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, as opposed to
0: <laughs> dead bees. Okay, yeah, wow, that's a really hard decision for me personally. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I also know of commercial-scale apiculturists, beekeepers who are using both ends, right? They're doing brood breaks, and then they're treating with oxalic after they've broken the brood cycle to completely clean even the phoretic mites, the mites that are on the adult bees, out of the hive. And there's been great success for folks with that. They're really knocking back varroa pressure and I think that that's cool that not only are people using chemicals but they're also starting to implement management strategies and see that it can be both ends it doesn't have to be a camp war situation right, <laughs> it doesn't right. have to be lord of the flies <laughs>
0: thank you and well and I just think if people just realizing the effectiveness of a brood break allowed them to use half as many treatments yay that's that's mm-hmm. a huge that's a win a huge yep. success so okay so now I'm on the other side of the page.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And I I wanna before we go into the recipe, I just want to mention that we looked at a lot of different ways to move these, which is this like fourth graph. And in a this this gets a little more into commercial or professional um apiculture, where sometimes we're making splits in one yard and moving them to another yard and our theory with that that it cuts down on the drift if you bring A bunch of queenless hives to one yard and everyone's queenless. They're going to drift, but it's sort of, you can even it out later when you go back and drop the cells. And there's all this talk in backyard beekeeping about what the best ways to, where, where you should put the original mother queen and where you should put the new walkaway split. And so we were like, all right, let's figure this out. Everyone has a different way of doing it, but we want to really dial in. And that's where the conversations about the recipes started happening. Because if we're like, okay, we found a method where we're not moving too much, where we're bringing in newer comb and where we're leaving the walkway split in the original location. And we're seeing that that has a higher success rate. And that's that's the next page.
0: Yes, I did read that about the moving. And I will tell you, to be honest, I kind of just slid right by it because As I get older, moving, I'm willing to (laughs) take a slight percentage of less mating success just to not to have to haul them around. (laughs)
1: Yeah, um, That's so so real. I'd say maybe 75% of the reason that we use the comfort hives is because they're light and easy to move, even when they're in double deep boxes and they have quite a bit of honey. They don't even weigh as much as some of the 10 frame lengths that I was moving around before. And I'm 38 and I knew five years ago that this was not going to be a sustainable situation <laughs> right well, it gets worse. My I hate bad, to tell you yeah right? yeah <laughs> I know <laughs> and
0: now we're moving on to the really exciting part to me, because you're you've created a recipe, and I want to mm-hmm. just uh, say one thing in the last podcast I did, I used the word recipe a few times, and I realized in hindsight that it might have come across as that, that recipe was some kind of bad thing. And I was going to correct this anyway, uh, because what I was doing at that time was I was contrasting knowing how to do something like one knows how to do a recipe, meaning you read item one, you, and you, you do the things versus the understanding of hives and beekeeping on that organism biology level, you you know, the Mm. difference between Mm -hmm. those two and and you need both layers. I mean, uh, I think, yeah. So, so anyway, I just wanted to clarify to listeners that Ginner B-Schools, you know, it's 100% recipe-based. And if you're lucky, they're yeah. good recipes, you know, but I, I was yeah. challenging them <laughs> to push on beyond that to understanding all the pieces and parts of a recipe, like a, a fine chef might use a recipe, but they know why they're doing each yeah. item. And that's to me the, the difference. So I love a recipe because it gives you this thing to follow. And then then things begin to make sense if you're also trying to yep. understand it on that biology level. So that was my little, right. uh, for the listeners of the most recent podcast. So y- you all have developed this Runaway Split. First of all, great, yes. great name. So tell me about the Runaway Split recipe.
1: Yeah, totally. So credit where credit is due. This is the brainchild of uh, Sam Comfort and the title, the runaway split, especially. So the idea of this is that you've got your whole hive, your big fat mama hive, and it's bubbling with bees and ready to split, right? Spring as well. And you would take that whole hive and you'd move it to a new spot in your yard. It could be for us, you know, that means picking it up and moving it a couple pallets away, or you could just take the hive, and move it on the same pallet with the or the um, entrance oriented in a different direction. It doesn't really matter. Then you're going to take an empty box, whatever your hive design is, also doesn't really matter. You're going to put that in the in the old location with the entrance oriented towards where those forager bees are returning to the hive. So you've got your empty box in the old location. You've got foragers coming back. Now you're going to go back to your old box and you're going to take a comb of larva with the bees that are on it, not the queen. So you've got to make sure you don't have the queen on there. Give it an extra good look. And then you're going to take a comb of nectar with all the bees on it. And again, make sure there's no queen on there. You've got two combs, one that's got larvae, young enough for the bees to make a queen and one that's got nectar and some pollen. And then you have that foraging field force returning to this tiny little hive made up of two combs, right? Next, you're going to leave. And you're going to leave the hive for four weeks. I mean, obviously, you got to put in your empty frame. If you are worried about your nectar flow, you might want to feed. These are all things that, as you said, you would add to the recipe, depending on where you are, what the needs of your bees are, etc. cetera. But the idea is that this small hive that's has got these two cones, enough nurse bees to raise that queen adequately. And then you have your returning foraging field force who is going to keep bringing nectar and pollen into the hive so the bees can raise cells and feed them well that you are going to have the perfect recipe for producing a queen perfect i hate that word i mean (laughs) you're going to have a good recipe and a high chance of success for uh, mating that queen and so you wait for a week you come back you check that hive it is now built out hopefully it's got a successfully mated queen it's built out new comb and that queen has already begun to lay either you'll be able to see larva and capped brood in that hive and you'll know that that queen is well mated based on the pattern of that brood you want to hear you want to see like nice tight concentric pattern where all of the brood is together not a spotty pattern because that means that she's actually inbred and then you can take that hive and you can split it again if you want to and do the exact same recipe and make another walkaway split or you can take that hive and catch the just catch the queen put her in a different hive combine those combs that are in the the walkway split with another hive, it's kind of up to you and what your objectives or goals of your apiary are. For us, this would be a method of making multiple walkaway splits over the season. One drawback of the walkway split versus grafting is that you do lose a little bit of population if you're doing multiple walkway splits in the same, of the same hive. So you have to be aware of that for your fall buildup, that you may need to feed these walkaway slits a little bit more so they can bulk up and produce the correct amount of winter bees for overwintering. Um, But it's, it's a minor drawback, not a major drawback. Yeah, and then the other thing is if this fails and you don't produce a queen, you just take the whole thing and combine it with the original hive and you haven't lost anything but a couple of combs. And you probably got a nice density of nectar and pollen collected in there that will then get used by a larger hive. I loved
0: it. This is, I mean, I'm just looking at this. It's got, the PDF has the little drawings. So it has the the recipe in words, and then it has the recipe mm-hmm. in drawings, which I love both. I, I have one question. There was one yeah. tiny thing in the recipe that I was like, huh, wonder why they do that. And it actually might be back on the, hmm, forget where it was. But so we're in the old location with the new empty box. And we've put the two frames, one frame uh, that has the nice young open larva that will be Uh one of the future queens and the frame of stores. There's a note in there somewhere that says, uh, place these somewhere away from the entrance of the hive. And I was so curious about the away part.
1: This is something that Sam discovered, and it's actually that they will build the comb faster. They'll draw more wax out if the comb is further away from the entrance. Sam Comfort is brilliant about wax production, understanding how to encourage bees to produce more wax in these smaller walkaway splits and mating nook splits. And so a lot of his brain power is going towards this because the more wax you have, the faster it's going to be for queens to build up, the more that they have to lay on. And then the more wax you have going into the winter as you're preparing to store food, right? So it actually really matters that wax production is consistent. And yeah, so he had found that the further away from the entrance, you put those combs, the better wax production was over that period of four weeks between the queen being raised and coming back mated. That is fascinating. Yeah it's, it's so fascinating and it's something that you know it, it wasn't a variable that we looked at in our data collection and it wasn't a variable that we reported on but it is this like fun little find that helps encourage that production um, which which I think again is great because we're looking at the fact that new wax is important and calling old wax is important. So then we need to also figure out as beekeepers, okay, how are we going to encourage more wax production? And again, that's like, I think that could be an entire study where we move the cones around and collect data about different types of hive styles and how much wax they're producing based on where we locate those in the hive.
0: That is fascinating. Yeah. I kept looking and going, now why? Now why do it? Cause, because my instinct would be to put them closest to the door, you know, because that's yeah. So that's fascinating. Oh, I'm going to try that. I can't wait to try that.
1: And I kind of wonder if it's because then they have to, they have to move across the space, right? So they, those foragers are understanding how much available space there is. And so when it comes time for wax production, this is all hypothesis. I have no scientific ground for this at all, but when it comes time for wax production, they know that there's that much space to fill. And so they're getting to work in filling that space. So it's sort of it's cueing their natural communication about what there is to do and who needs to do it and possibly helping structure the roles and responsibilities of young bees early on as they're coming out of those, out of the captured. So let's
0: see. So we've got the recipe, which I will definitely attach to this podcast. And it's, it's just beautiful. It's just and, and, and it is interesting that your drawings are from uh, a comfort hive, which, which I think are just darling. I just want to hug any one of them that I see. They're just so darling. A random uh, question. Do, do you overwinter comfort hives in colder places? Oh, yes, we do.
1: What's the secret to that? Great question. That's another study we could do. We do them here stacked four deep we feed them we have a good nectar we have a good fall nectar flow where i am we get something called japanese knotweed and we live in this very sandy river bottom area along the connecticut river valley and so the japanese knotweed production is booming in september so we let them get fat in september on that and then we feed them into the fall so they don't eat up all those stores cuz it's actually a very nutrient dense nectar And so we make sure, then we make sure that they hit a certain weight protocol so that they're heavy enough to make it through the later part of the fall. And for us, we do get really cold winters, but we also get very variable temperatures like you were talking about um, in the mountains where you are in Western North Carolina. So it's important for us. We try to feed October, November, and we feed until the nights really start dipping into the freezing point. Uh, we also do a lot of fall assessment. If we're seeing high mite loads or we are seeing that a, a population is dwindling, we'll do combines later in the year, like shakeout combines, because we don't want to like put a bunch of resource into a tiny dwindling hive that's not going to make it till the solstice, because uh, it's just a waste of energy and time for everybody involved. Then we have a feeder rim on top, so we can do um, emergency feed as necessary, because sometimes here our Springs don't start until May. Sometimes they start in April. Sometimes they start in May. Real persnickety. And sometimes they can be just very wet, which means even though a lot of things are blooming, the bees aren't getting out to forage as much, which can lead to like late spring starvation. So we put, we do mountain camp method feeding. We add that to the top. We put an insulated board underneath reflectex, and then we put a lot of weight on top of the hive. So we actually use two or three or sometimes four tiles because it can also be quite windy here you get a good gust of wind and you don't have enough weight on that hive it'll just blow right over and then we wrap them in tar paper the looping paper that a lot of folks use we don't wrap them in insulation because the boards are a bit thicker than a length and so they get a nice bit of insulation from the thickness of the boards
0: wonderful I love that Yes, and I, I hope that one day Sam will come on here and just talk all about the the comfort hives. But he has, has a lot of great stuff on YouTube.
1: Yeah, a ton. And part of this, you know, part of this content is that we also made he made a ton more content that will slowly be re- releasing on the they Keep Bees YouTube, so that people have access to that. Like every this runaway split recipe, just to the side of the the it, the visuals and the writing you can click on that little yellow box and it'll take you out to a video. And the same is true for our queen rearing guide that takes you through all three methods is that every single little yellow box takes you out to a video that also talks you through the method too. So pretty cool that we were able to produce something that speaks to so many different kinds of learning, auditory, visual, reading, you know, and that, that's sort of a unique thing about this piece of content as well.
0: It's And it's just beautiful too. It's just a, a joy... A joy to look at It is so much fun talking to you.
1: yeah, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, too, and I'm really excited to see that we've got some research that is proving what a lot of beekeepers' intuitions knew already, right? There are people using exclusively walkaway splits in their small, mid and large scale operations, and they know it works, and now we have data that's beginning to back that up. and we're not the only one and that data will continue to get uncovered and it'll be really exciting to see what that means for our industry. So it's like this, again, another gateway, another portal into what's possible, which is exciting for me.
0: Well, and if I ever get to go to uh, B-Club meetings again in person, then I'm just going to have a few copies of your research paper in my pocket. And when, some, you know, when someone, when I talk about my methods and someone goes, well, you know, emergency queens suck, I'm just going to say. I happen to have some data here in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Right here, you see? (laughs) Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it because I've got your reading for tonight uh, and I'm going (laughs) to hand it to you right now.
1: Yeah, and that's why we partnered with the people that we worked with, because we wanted a statistical analysis of each of those queens. And we really wanted to find out what was the quality, not just the, an experiment in the field, but looking at analysis of the queens and analysis of the statistics, because it it's proof, you know, That's I know true. it's only one set of proof, <laughs> but it's proof. <laughs>